always good, I feel increasingly, to get one's teeth into a new series of sermons on the first Sunday evening of the new year, having had a, a one-off to begin with in the morning. I'm kind of champing at the bit by the evening to get into something which is going to, God willing, last a while. Uh, my strong conviction is that this first letter of Peter is a letter that seems especially appropriate to us believers during this present time in our present circumstances. Now, why do I say this? Well, really, the, uh, the title of tonight's message, and in one sense, the theme that we're going to be keeping in mind throughout this letter, is contained in two words in verse 1. And if you look with me at verse 1, uh, you may fairly quickly spot what those two words might be in the ESV. To those who are elect exiles. Elect exiles. What is the theme of this first letter of Peter? Many have said it is it's suffering, it's persecution, it's trials. And there is a great deal about suffering and persecution in this letter. But really, before we get to the picture, uh, the themes of suffering and persecution, there is a bigger, deeper issue underlying this question. And this is the question. Who are we as Christians in this world? Who are we in this world where are we going in life and in eternity? And once we know who we are, how should we live in this world? The great Francis Schaeffer had as one of his many book titles, How Should We Then Live? And that really is our question. Knowing who we are, we will know how to live. Knowing who we are as elect exiles, we will know how to live in this world as elect exiles. We've just started at home a great big jigsaw, given very generously to us by a member of this congregation. It has a thousand pieces in it, and we've got the corners and the edge pieces in place a couple of days ago. Once you've got the corners and edges in place, you can start to do the easy bit, which is the middle 874 pieces. I did the calculation the other day. Well, it's a bit like that with this letter. Let's get the corner pieces and the edge pieces in place, even tonight if we can, then we can fill in the middle bit later on. Christians are elect exiles. That's how Peter addresses his readers. What is the ethnicity or the nationality of these first readers of this letter? Well, we really don't know the answer to that question because they are a scattered people. We understand that. Where do these people live? Well, they live all over the place. They live among five Roman provinces in what is modern-day Turkey, in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia 
and Bithynia. In other words, the readers of this first letter, if you were to look at them, you would see many complexions of face, you would hear many different languages, you would see many different national costumes, you would witness many different cultures, not all that unlike Grove Chapel in some ways today, 2,000 years on. But what do all these people have in common? And more to the point, what do we have in common with them, though we are 2,000 years on from them? We are also elect exiles. And maybe you're thinking, some of you, well, what exactly does that mean, elect exiles? Can you explain that to us, please? Well, I'm intending to tonight. Those are my two points tonight. First of all, exiles. And then, secondly, elect exiles. But let's start by saying, we, like they, are exiles. What does exiles mean? There are various ways we can translate, and the scriptures in various languages do translate the word for exiles. We could say strangers, pilgrims, Refugees, aliens, aliens in the sense not of coming from Mars or some weird planet, but being from another place. Resident foreigners, people who are not at home, people who are not where they truly belong. And not only that, but are people who are longing and yearning and straining almost to be in their true home. They're longing for their true home. That is the sense of these exiles. Some people are exiles from a certain place, and it doesn't trouble them too much. I remember a history teacher years ago saying to us that he was a Hampshire exile. A bit like Dave here, I suppose, a Hampshire exile. It didn't trouble him too much that he was no longer in Hampshire. He was in Cambridgeshire instead. It didn't worry him too much. But these people here are exiles, excuse me, who are longing for their home. And the classic exile scripture, or one of them, would be Psalm 137, where, of course, the people of God are exiled in Babylon. And maybe you know the words of that psalm, some of the words of that psalm. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land, in a foreign land? Some of you are smiling, and you're perhaps remembering the, uh, the Boney M, number one from 1978, which went through my mind too. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Those are the emotions and longings of an exile. Oh, there's nowhere like Jerusalem, say these people who are exiles in Babylon. I can look around the congregation and see uh, at least two and maybe more Welsh speakers and um, some of you are familiar with the Welsh word hiraith. And hiraith means, as I understand it, a longing for home. Something deeper and richer 
than simply homesickness. That sense of being back in the land of our fathers, being back in the valleys of South Wales or among the slate mines of North Wales or in, in Sheer Vaughan, in Anglesey, or wherever you happen to come from. And then there are the lyrics of, for example, John Denver. I'm showing my own age here and my recollections of these songs. John Denver, who wrote Almost Heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Life is old there, older than the trees, younger than the mountains, growing like a breeze. Some of you are smiling. Country roads, take me home to the place I belong. West Virginia, Mountain Mama, take me home. Country roads. And you could, you could look at so many cultures and, and poems and songs and you could see there the, the longings of an exile. But here's the question. Where are we exiled from? Is it Spain? Is it Hampshire? Is it Wales? Is it West Virginia? Is it the present city of Jerusalem? The answer is quite straightforward. For the Lord's people, home is to be with God himself and with all his gathered people. The closer we are to the Lord, the more truly we are at home. And that is the New Testament emphasis, especially in the writings of the Apostle Paul, as he speaks of his own deepest, innermost longings. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And our loved ones, and we one day, depart from this body to go home with the Lord. And the Apostle Paul also says, doesn't he, in Philippians, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. That is better by far. And this is the language of the exile, of the spiritual exile. The thoughts and sentiments which strike a chord with every true Christian believer. This world is not our true and lasting home if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are we? We are sojourners. We are travellers. We are resident aliens who are passing through. Yes, we pitch our tent in this world for a number of years, 70 or 80 or more, if we have the strength. Yes, we seek the peace of the city where the Lord puts us. Yes, we treasure and value many wonderful things that God has made in this world and our friends and our family and our work and the sights and sounds that retain their beauty even in a fallen world. And yes, we serve the Lord faithfully where we are and we are responsible in this world for this world. But like the Old Testament saints mentioned in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, we acknowledge, we must acknowledge that we are strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. That's the spirit of a pilgrim. 
That's the spirit of an exile. This is the godly, spiritual hiraith of every true believer. Maybe in your own languages, those of you who have English as a second language, there is a word that expresses in in, in Ga or in, uh, or in Spanish or in any other language where you come from, there is, there is a word that expresses a longing for Ghana, a, a longing for Spain, I don't know, a longing for the Caribbean, a longing for Nigeria. Well, for all God's people, there is a longing to be at home because we are exiles. But this is the second point. We're elect exiles. We're not just plain old exiles. We're exiles who are elect. And what does that mean? Well, the word elect means chosen, selected. We had a general election a few weeks ago. And whatever you may think of the outcome of it, we're glad it's over. The Conservative Party were elected, selected, chosen as the government of this country. But the word elect or election when used in the Bible is not just chosen, chosen by someone, chosen by anyone, chosen by the, the democratic population. No, it's not that at all. It has that sense of being divinely chosen. And not only divinely chosen, but divinely favored. Chosen and selected and favored by God himself. And yes, Peter is going to talk a great deal in this letter about the suffering and the trials and the persecution of the believer. That is there already in these early verses of chapter 1. But underpinning all of that, underpinning, undergirding, upholding all that we must pass through as exiles in this world, is this glorious teaching of divine election. Divine foreknowledge, choice, predestination. And it's spelt out by Peter very fully indeed in the second verse of this chapter. We know that in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul in the first 14 verses, without drawing a breath, spells out all that this divine election of God for us means. Well, Peter's own version here is somewhat shorter, but it's rich, it's dense, it's wonderful. Look at what he says in verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his Now, there are four points mentioned here. I want in a moment to look at these four quite briefly. But before I do that, please notice two very important features of all of them. And this is something that we see throughout this letter. These descriptions of who we are as chosen, favored, elect exiles are saturated soaked, shot through with the redemptive language of the Old Testament. Anybody with an Old Testament background reading these words would see the themes and resonances 
of the Old Testament books, especially the books of the law, those books of the Pentateuch. Why? Because the Bible is one book. The New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And Israel were the original, elect, chosen, favoured people of God. And we today, by grace and grace alone, in Jesus Christ, are the new and fulfilled Israel of God. Notice that. And then secondly, notice this. So important for us as believers today to see this. That the descriptions in verse 2 are thoroughly Trinitarian. See how he begins by mentioning God the Father. And then in the next expression mentions the Spirit of God. And then mentions in the third expression, effectively twice for good measure, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ours is an election, a favoring, a choosing by the God of the Bible, by the God of Israel, by the God of Abraham, by the God of the whole scriptures. And ours is an election, a favoring, and a choosing of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what do we therefore see in these four descriptions we have in verse 2? We see, first of all, that we are elect, chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Why are we chosen? Why us? Well, we could ask the question, why Israel in the Old Testament? Not for any good in them. Not for any strength in them. Not because they were a people more numerous, more successful, more deserving, or more righteous than anyone else. But God chose that nation of Israel above all the nations of the whole earth that he might show his saving favor to them. His free sovereign grace. And my friends, that is still true today. It's true for us. Why are we found in Christ? Why can we speak confidently of knowing God, of having access to God through the blood of Jesus Christ? Why can we speak of our privileges? Because we are wise, because we are clever, because we happen to make the right choice, because we, we did our research carefully and we found the right way and we've done very well for ourselves. Not a bit of it. Because we chose freely and voluntarily to follow Jesus of our own accord. Not a bit of it. No. Elect according to the sovereign foreknowledge of God the Father. So that all glory and all praise for our salvation goes only to him and not to us. He loved us before the foundation of the world because he loved his son and he gave his son a people and we by grace were among that people. It's his saving purpose. And you know, there's nothing more comforting than that. If I am a Christian, ultimately because I am smart enough to become a Christian, and to remain a Christian, and to choose to be a Christian, and I stand on my own cleverness, on my own ability, then I'm standing on the shakiest ground imaginable, aren't I? 
But as we heard this morning, as we thought this morning, it's not we who are faithful. It's not we who are full of faith. It's he who promised who is faithful. And he who promised is he who elected, is he who loved, is he who chose, is he who saves. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And then we see second thing, don't we? Elect, chosen, in the sanctification of the Spirit. What did the Lord God say to his people in the Old Testament? Why did he choose them? Why did he call them? Why did he call them apart to be a people? Well, that great central book of the law, Leviticus, gives us all the answers to that question. And at the heart of that book of Leviticus are these words that you know from God, which are quoted later on here in 1 Peter. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. We are his people, a chosen people, a holy nation, a treasured possession, a people belonging to God, a people at whom God looks and says, these are my own treasured jewels. They are devoted to me, and they are the very apple of my eye, and I have loved them and called them to myself that they should partake of my holy character. And their holiness comes then and now, not from any outward ceremonies, not from the mere rituals of Old or New Testament worship, but our holiness comes, says this verse, from the sanctifying presence and power of the Holy Spirit himself. Our holiness is to be real. It is to be lived out. It is to be an ethical holiness. It is to be a spiritual holiness. It is to be a heart holiness, a sincere holiness, a real holiness. A holiness that says, I open my mouth and I I pant, O God, for your commandments. I want to keep my life pure according to your word. And that takes us on, you see, seamlessly to the very next blessing of election that belongs to us as elect exiles. Elect, chosen, for obedience to Jesus Christ. There should be nothing surprising about this. Don't listen to those who say, well, the Old Testament was all about law and obedience and duty and doing the right thing, and the New Testament is just about love and grace and acceptance and obedience is a a dirty word for the New Testament. Not a bit of it. Not a bit of it. But see what it says. Obedience to Jesus Christ. You remember Jesus Christ, the lawgiver. Sitting on the mount, his disciples and a great crowd beneath him, giving that great sermon on the mount. And what's it a sermon about? It's a sermon about godly obedience. Obedience from the heart. Not then, not ever, a mere outward ceremonial obedience, but a spirit-filled obedience, a genuine obedience. 
an obedience that penetrates into the very motives of our hearts. You've heard it said in the past that uh, whoever, whoever murders somebody should be put to death and so on. But I tell you that if you hate your brother, says our Lord, you've already committed murder in your heart. If you say, Raka, if you call your brother a fool, uh, then you, you have sinned against God's holy commandment. You've heard it said in the past that uh, adultery is, is a sin, but I tell you that if you look at someone lustfully, in your imagination of your heart, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. You see, the Lord Jesus calls us to a deep obedience. And he says to his disciples, if you love me, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Obedience is writ large in the New Testament. The letter to the Romans uh, has as its bookends this wonderful expression of the obedience of faith. What is our faith? What is our life of faith? It is a life of godly obedience because having heard the gospel of our salvation that Christ died for our sins, we have died to sin and we now live to Christ and we live to God. And this obedience we see is written on our hearts, written by the Spirit of God himself. Obedience. But fourthly, of course, we see the best thing of all. Elect, chosen, for sprinkling with his blood. Praise God that that's there for us as the last and best thing of all. We are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It's such a rich expression. We were in Hebrews this morning. We could go back to Hebrews any time we wanted, really. And we read there in chapter 9 that in the tabernacle and in the temple, almost everything was sprinkled with blood. You go through those Levitical commandments, and time and again you see the sprinkling of blood being commanded. And you ask, why? Why all this blood? Well, because as Hebrews 9.22 tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is the grace of God. This is the salvation of God. We were there this morning. Our guilt is covered our evil conscience is purged clean because deeper, richer, nobler blood has been shed. What was at the very center of Old Testament worship? You went into the tabernacle and into the most holy place. Not that you could go in there. It was forbidden to almost everybody but the high priest. But what was inside there? There was the mercy seat. There was the cover, the atonement cover, above the Ark of the Covenant. That covenant, that Ark of the Covenant contained the two tablets of the law of the Ten Commandments. Obedience, you see, is there. Obedience is at the heart of Israel's worship. But above and surrounding and covering that obedience, because of the possibility and the reality of our disobedience, 
is the mercy seat that is sprinkled with blood. What does that tell us? It tells us that because our obedience is lacking, because we are by nature disobedient, because we sin and fall as we do, we need sprinkled blood to cover and save us. And this is what we have been elected to, chosen for, for sprinkling with his blood. The Lord Jesus himself went to the cross of Calvary to shed his blood for his beloved people, the people the Father had given him, the elect, the chosen, the beloved of the Father. And we, by grace, are that elect people. Not only us, but the teeming millions and billions across this world's surface who call on the name of Jesus Christ. So you see, all these four things tell us about our election. How we have been chosen by God in Jesus Christ. We are exiles in this world. We're away from our true home. But we are journeying towards it in this life, as we will see. And there is for us all a great tension, isn't there, in our lives. The tension between being exiles and being elect. Because we are exiles... We know much of estrangement and ostracization and not belonging in this world and longing for something better and feeling so piercingly at times that this world is not where we belong. But on the other hand, as elect exiles, we know a hope and a joy and a spiritual reality, and a knowledge imparted to us only by God himself, that we are his people, that we are loved by him, we are chosen by him. We will unfailingly be led through this life and into the next by the God who promises and who is faithful who can never, ever deny what he has said he will do for his own people. Elect exiles. And the whole Christian life is lived out against that background of understanding who we are. We're not at home in this world. We are exiles but we are citizens of a better world, of heaven. We belong to God. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is our ultimate home and yearning and longing and destiny. Final words of verse 2. Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Well, let's now make those words the basis of our final prayer together. Let us all pray.
Lord our God, we ask you that the grace that elects and saves and brings us unfailingly to glory and to God would be more and more furthered within all our hearts and minds, that we would have our spiritual eyes enlightened to perceive and to understand what is this foreknowledge of God the Father, what is this sanctification of the Holy Spirit, what is for us this obedience to Jesus Christ, and what is praise be to you for your grace, this sprinkling with his blood. And, O oh Lord, we think of that final, final promise of the sprinkling with blood. And, O oh Lord, we realize and we worship and thank you for this, that without that sprinkling of blood, we could have no hope, no joy, no peace, no rest. We could have nothing to anticipate that would bring any happiness for any of us at all. But we have been made by you and we have been redeemed by you and for you living Lord God help us we pray to know this grace help us to understand what this grace means and may there be a peace given to our hearts and minds that enables us O oh Lord to go through this turbulent life that we must live may the peace that passeth understanding. Guard and keep all our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. O Lord, we come as a needy people. We come as a people assailed by our great enemy. We come as a people upset by disorders and dysfunctionality in our bodies and minds and souls and in our homes and work and families and, O oh Lord, set around with so many trials. But, O oh Lord God, you are greater than us and greater than all our trials. And we pray that grace abounding would be known and tasted and enjoyed by every one of us to give you praise and thanks. Lord, be with those who, again we pray, who start back at school tomorrow, whether as pupils or teachers, or teaching assistants, or those going back to university or college in the weeks ahead, or for those starting back at work after a long Christmas and New Year uh, holiday, we pray, Lord God, for a double portion of your grace and peace to be given to your elect children in Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.